This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. I mean, what, what do we do now that's special for kids who are born into a life situation where there are no adults to take care of them? I mean, there's the foster system, foster care system that's overstretched, underfunded. I haven't heard of a special fund or special program for children who were born, but they would have been born if their moms had been able to get an abortion. I mean, there's a lot there. So one example that, that is even hard to say out loud. That's even hard to say. I'm like, how does that work? But okay. So um, <laughs> what is it in Sudan for the children who were born out of rape during the civil conflict, there are now schools for them. Is that where we want to be? Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. On June 24th, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, and I thought it was so important for FemPower Health to have a conversation about this. But today is not about our opinions related to whether or not abortion should be legalized. Today is about the way forward and the implications of this decision. So I am extremely pleased to bring to you attorney Delphine O'Rourke, and she practices in New York City at Goodwin's Women's Health and Wellness Practice. And we are here to talk about all that we can do to move forward. And believe it or not, every single one of us has a role to play. So if you listen all the way through, we will help you better understand what that might look like. And I hope by the end of this episode, it puts you in as much ease as possible with the realities of the unknown situation in the years to come. So let's dive right in to this incredible discussion. First, I wanted to start before we have you introduce yourself about a quote that someone shared when I had asked on social media what people wanted me to uh, discuss with you during this episode. And they talked about how not so long ago, we were all shamed about our bodies and didn't really understand them. And now we have Roe v. Wade being overturned. Now, today, it's not about whether or not we're pro or against abortion. And this is not about politics. Today is about women's lives and how this Supreme Court decision that was made on June 24th has a downstream impact. And so I'm really, really excited to cover all the implications. And this is really about the legal aspects um, and the day-to-day lives. So why don't you start by giving your fabulous background and then we can dive right into you sharing your expertise and all the things that we need to know. And I'd love to respond to that quote or react to that quote. I think it's a great one and it brings up so many different issues that are related to the Supreme Court decision that are related to our women's power in deciding what kind, demanding what kind of care they want, deserve, need. Um, So first of all, thank you so much for inviting me for this conversation. I think these conversations are critical because there is such an opportunity, white space for more education. There's so much confusion around the Supreme Court decision in large part because it is so confusing and because there's a lot of myth that's swirling. So I'm Delphine O'Rourke. I'm a partner with a large law firm. We have about 1,800 lawyers worldwide and our really area of, of expertise is in the life sciences, healthcare, um, along with investment. So we represent a lot of investors in, in the space as well as developers. 
and I lead our women's health and wellness industry practice. So what does that mean? We developed a department. We'd been doing the work for years, but we didn't package it. And what I was finding is that clients were saying, you know, I want to find a lawyer who is an expert in women's health and wellness, but it wasn't easy to find me. So we launched this and we have an amazing team. So, and lawyers who focus on all different types of legal areas. So for example, IP protection, your intellectual property, your trademark, labor and employment. So really it's a, it's a team effort. And we have lawyers who really know the women's health industry and know the laws. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. I also teach at Columbia Law School on uh, healthcare and the law. And, you know, I try to do everything that I can and the skills that I have are, are legal skills and, and hopefully advocating for, you know, laws that encourage access to care for women. So again, thank you so much. No, thank you. So, you know, you mentioned rumors. So I remember you had a wonderful session last week where a lot of us who are so passionate about women's health got together to hear different experts talking about um, some of the changes, advancements, et cetera. And I think it was you or one of the panelists had mentioned how there was this rumor right after Roe v. Wade being overturned on how mm -hmm. everyone needed to go to their fertility tracking and period tracking apps and delete all their data. Um, so that was like one of the first like fear things and, and many other things as well. Some of them were founded and some of them were unfounded. Um, so, so tell me more about, about some of these common fears that you have seen or are still in existence that we need to understand and how this has broadened out to becoming much more than just about, are we pro abortion or not? So fear is, you know, fear is widespread. Fear is widespread among women who might be looking to access abortion services, women who maybe are talking to their providers, psychiatrists, either in person or through telemedicine, about concerns that they have, maybe pre, maybe post, just having those conversations. You know, is it now, is there this fear that law enforcement is going to come after you or in certain states, your neighbor, because the laws give what's called the private right of action, that your neighbor could be investigating you or bringing a lawsuit. So fear among consumers, fear among providers, whether they're providing abortion services or not. And as you mentioned, this is much broader than abortion services. What about contraception? You know, there are physicians who don't know whether they should be prescribing contraception in, let's say, a three-month pack. Some insurance companies will cover for three months at a time because, oh, you know, that could be used as a, as a plan B if you take multiple doses of contraception. So they're saying, do I prescribe? Do I not prescribe? There's been a run on contraception, a run on plan B, even in what we call tr trigger states, which were states that had basically laws on the books. I'm sort of simplifying it, but laws on the books that once the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade and said that um, regulating uh, abortion should be made at the state level. So basically saying it's not a it's not a federal issue. It's a state issue. So your state lawmakers, your Congress people, your state senators, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about voting. Um, we have, all, you know, less power than I'd like, but more power uh, that we could exercise around access to care, not just about abortion. So fear among providers, I'm an emergency physician and a woman comes in and her stabilizing treatment, the treatment that she needs in an emergent basis, not next week, but now, maybe she's having a miscarriage, maybe it's an ectopic pregnancy. And if that physician is in a state where abortion is outlawed, the physicians are concerned. Am I going to be, you know, prosecuted? Is law enforcement going to come after me? Am I going to go to jail because I did this, even though there's a federal law called, I'll call the EMTALA law that, that requires that patients get, you know, life, life saving treatment. So a lot of fear among providers and then, you know, consumers, you refer to the privacy piece is right after the decision uh, dropped on June 24th, all of our social media was this, oh, you know, delete your information. It's no longer protected, no longer protected by HIPAA, no longer protected. We can talk about HIPAA if that's useful for your audience. Dump it. So why, why is that concerning? Well, 
Yes. I mean, there's now a greater concern that government enforcement, law enforcement could request if they have a proper documentation, so a subpoena or court order, that they could request access to your period tracking app. And if your period tracking app, you entered that you were pregnant, and then later on you entered that you were not pregnant or that you had an abortion, um, you know, a lot of them don't even have that information. They're not asking. That's not the point. Um, but that you could be subject to somebody else having that that information and then being prosecuted. What I think is important to note is HIPAA, which is the law that is often referred to, didn't protect information on third-party apps anyways. So if I downloaded information on this phone that has nothing to do with my provider, so it's different. If it's my OBGYN and my OBGYN and I communicate through this app, that's different than an app that has nothing to do with your provider. That information wasn't protected by HIPAA anyways. That information has always been you know, discoverable generally. Um, that's why it's so important to look at the terms of service and see, can that app share information? A lot of apps sell information. So, you know, really we get back to education and the purpose of, you know, these conversations is if you do have an app that you're using for whatever it is, maybe it's tracking your sleep. And one of the reasons you're not sleeping well is because you're ovulating, whatever it may be. Well, look at the terms and conditions. Who can they sell that information to? If you're concerned about GPS, that was another one. What if law enforcement could find out where I had been and they look at the abortion clinic locations? There are ways on the apps to make sure uh, Tia did this, is they removed the location tracking feature. So we have ways that we can protect our information. At the end of the day, and this was, you know, same thing pre a uh, Supreme Court decision, if law enforcement has a valid reason to request that information, and you're seeing this with conversations over around January 6th, they can get that information. So what are the what's the likelihood? That's another part of the conversation. Uh, but it's not as though we were fully protected before. So my day job is as a consultant, and typically, you know, the way we operate and, and the type of work that I do is, you know, leadership will say, this is something that we're going to do at our company. Um, there's a, an, an activity that happens or a decision that is made. And before it is announced in an ideal world, if our clients yeah. hire us at the right time, we are putting all these plans in place. So when the go button is hit, everything is organized. And, you know, this, and I see the chaos of what happens when that's not done right. This is now at a national scale <laughs> that impacts not just, you know, a few people, it impacts a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. And it's kind of chaos because the stakeholders, meaning the patient, the police officers, yeah. the doctors, the insurance companies, the roles and responsibilities aren't defined. So what I'm hearing you say, though, is kind of are these fears justified because what I'm hearing you say is unless these apps and services have proactively put things in place to mitigate the possibility of some of this information getting out, there is a risk because of the chaos. Is, am I making a fair assumption here? Uh, you are, but there was also a risk. So you could say it's a greater risk. There was also a risk. And I think that's the thing. I mean, you can make analogies to COVID. When people said, oh, no, now the government's going to know what I'm doing. The government already knew what you were doing if you're uploading information. It's all of this, this growth in these apps, okay, is as consumers, we think they're protected. And, you know, who reads the terms of service? I mean, how often do you scroll down and say, oh, okay, so this app is controlled by Arkansas law versus Florida law? Most people don't do that. Let's face it. You know, so any type, we're, we're very, you know, eager to download any type of information that's going to help us track our eating habits, track where we like to go to the movies, whatever it is. All that information we are giving in addition to information that is taken. So on the issue of the risk, so what's the risk? The risk is that you would in, in you know, input into an app that you had an abortion. So, and this is what I've been doing with clients, investor clients, company clients, just all over is 
what are the chances that that's going to happen if we're talking about apps? A, does your app even ask for abortion information? If it does, does it really need to? You know, and if it does ask for abortion information and I'm a consumer, I would want to know, well, who has access to that information just in the course of business? Are they selling that information to clinical research organizations? Are they selling that information to Target? Just even as a baseline, who is getting your health information? Because PHI, your patient health information, is protected while you're in the hospital doctor context. But all of this innovation, which has been fantastic in many areas, also with it comes with risk. And I think what's important to also note is it's state by state. And telemedicine is already state by state, for example. So, you know, depending on where you are, but also where the provider is going to be or the company is going to be. So, but I would sort of step back and say, okay, what's, what's the fear here? The fear is you're going to engage in an activity that is illegal in certain states and that the government can come after you and you can go to jail because you got an abortion. Right. or that you were thinking about getting an abortion and just having those conversations, you know, were you intending to commit a crime? You know, so it's, it, it's, that's, that's the fear. You're in a state that is restrictive. So what I would suggest to everyone is look up your state statute. They define conception differently, personhood differently, you know, the exceptions, is there an exception for incest or rape or, you know, saving the life of the mother? We have an obligation now more than ever to understand, because before it was one law, but to understand what the laws say in the states where we live or where, you know, our kids go to school or wherever you're going to be, you know, spending time where an abortion could take place. Um, and to not only think about abortion, but to think about, okay, let's say contraception. How is that going to be impacted? How, is I, how are IUDs going to be impacted? And if you look at the statute and you say, you know, it's clear as mud because a lot of these laws are like a lot of state laws are just not clear. Say, okay, what are the resources? I mean, reach out to me. And if I, you know, there are a lot of not, nonprofit organizations that are also working with patients understand don't listen to the news because they're covering overall i'm not saying it's fake media in any way what i'm just saying is understand if you are in oklahoma what is going on in oklahoma start there and i know that there are a lot of parents who are concerned women young women young men who are concerned start with what applies to you i appreciate you also saying you know people can come to you or look at some of the nonprofits because you know, I think I actually had some conversations with my neighbors this morning at the school bus, and we were talking about how, you know, disadvantaged populations, you know, those who don't have access, the dollars, et cetera, are really in a challenge. I mean, I have access to a lot of information, and I definitely feel like if I have to go read a law, and I'm also a bottom line kind of person, so I want the three bullets, like what's my takeaway? And trying to read all that is legalese and whatnot is intimidating and overwhelming. And imagine, I mean, let's just say you're a woman who literally right now has to make a decision. Can you imagine trying to read the law? No, no. And that's why there are organizations and, you know, conversations like this where we're saying, okay, what do you really want to look at? Okay. So how do they define conception? There's something called a personhood law. That's another way that it's being phrased. When is the person created? Because once the person is created, that's sort of the, the triggering time for, for the laws. So to your right. point, you know, sort of really basic, are there exceptions? You know, is there an exception listed for, for rape, for incest, for the life of the mother? Another key area to look at is ectopic pregnancies. Fetal heartbeat, no fetal heartbeat. Um, you know, and that gives me actually a great idea for, you know, maybe an article or even something to push out on LinkedIn. What do these things mean? I mean, I'm in this space all the time. So when I'm saying, oh, it's a personhood law um, or a fetal heartbeat, I know what that means, but not never, not necessarily everyone is thinking about this. And what are the implications? You know, is contraception in the uterus or outside the uterus? That's another area. Um, and it's about abortion. It's also about fertility. This is access to IVF. And, and we know IVF, and I'll get back to sort of marginalized and, 
and in historically underrepresented communities, this is impacting two-day access to IVF and what type of treatments are available. This is impacting two-day access to contraception. And maybe it's going to impact access to IUDs and other forms of birth control. Um, this is impacting today women saying, you know, a lot of women get their primary care for primary care from Planned Parenthood or other organizations, you know, once they find out they're pregnant. Um, am I going to go and get primary care if I'm afraid that maybe in the course of that conversation, I would find out I'm pregnant and then my physician knows and I'm not clear on what my physician can or can't do? There's this fear that if a physician finds out that you're pregnant, that they're going to call law enforcement and report you. It's creating a chilling effect on women even getting care for mammograms, for, you know, ear infections, for IU, you know, name it. If I don't trust my primary care physician, because now my primary care physician, or I think my primary care physician has this obligation, you know, so the impact is tremendous. And when you were, you know, talking about underserved communities, who is this going to impact the most? It's going to be women yep. who, you know, don't have the means to travel out of state, who, you know, don't work for an employer who says, oh, I'm going to cover your travel expenses or can't take the time off from work or have other kids that they need to take care of. You know, it's, it's going to impact, you know, women of color already who are disproportionately impacted by need for abortion services or seeking abortion services, you know, marginalized communities. This is yet another challenge to access for care to care, not just for abortion services, but all these other services that, that women need and preventive services. I mean, that's one of the big areas that concerns me. We're going to, we're seeing already the same thing now with women who are afraid to go. I know that the media needs to sensationalize things to be able to, you know, get people to have the views. I know that headlines need to be written a certain way to get a click. I know on social media, the more alarming we are, the more followers we get. So I know that's not helping. But as I'm talking to you, I won't lie. I feel like I'm sweating because I'm hearing just all these things that can happen. And I guess first, are these founded fears? Like, are these real? Should we actually be this afraid? On Tuesday of this week, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham introduced a bill to have a national abortion law that would outlaw abortion. So what does that mean? That means that, you know, in effect, restrictive states, you know, it's not, is it going to be like Texas? Is it going to be like Alabama? But a restrictive version would be the law of the land. And, you know, that's a discussion I've been having, advising my clients for months, saying, be prepared for that possibility. It's not going to be tomorrow, but be prepared for that. And a lot of folks have said, no, no, you know, in the, in the conversations, there's no way that could happen. Well, guess what? No one thought Roe v. Wade would be overturned. You know, um, no one thought that there could be a proposal for a national abortion ban. When I say no one thought, I mean, yeah, there's, there, there's a constituency that has been, they say, you know, very public about this has been 50 years in the making and we're not going to stop. And when Lindsey Graham proposed his bill commentary afterwards, he said, this isn't going to happen tomorrow. So why not tomorrow? Well, you know, there isn't that over, um, you know, there are different numbers on how many people support restricting access. So even putting that aside, we have a Congress that's not controlled by conservative Republicans, and we don't have a Republican president. So by putting that bill out, you know, the conservative Republicans are, you know, communicating with that group of constituents for whom this is incredibly important, and they'll just continue and continue to push that agenda. So my question is, and again, this isn't about your views or my views, but what is the push um, on the other side of that conversation? What are we seeing mobilize um, to counterbalance that, that initiative? Because it will right. continue. So should we be afraid? Um, let's look at enforcement. You know, nothing, okay. you know, so what do we have enforcement generally so far? You know, the, the Texas uh, representatives, a group of them sent a letter to Lyft, the, the company that gives you rides, 
that you pay for, um, saying if you offer to reimburse your employees for reproductive services, you are violating your obligations to shareholders. Pretty aggressive letter, okay? Um, similarly sent a, a letter to a major law firm. Um, you know, if you are helping, then you are aiding and abetting. What'll be interesting to watch is whether Texas, whether it's law enforcement or the attorney general's office goes after individuals or whether they continue to focus on larger companies and say, you know, Goldman Sachs, Dick Sporting Goods said we are going to reimburse our employees, yes. whether it's more effective to go after a company that has, I'm making this number up, but 200,000 employees than one woman. Yeah. Um, but should we be afraid? I mean, I, I think we should, because this isn't the only, when I say afraid, it's a understanding what laws impact us. You know, it's sort of what's next. Is it contraceptives are going to be next? You know, is it, um, there's a, there was a judicial decision, a judge came down with a decision on te in Texas on Tuesday. There's a, a group of, um, of people who are saying that insurance companies shouldn't have to reimburse for preventive medicine and for um, medicine that helps treat people with HIV. And their argument was that, so PrEP, their argument was that reimbursing, so it's no, it's under the Affordable Care Act, there's certain preventive care, which also includes colonoscopies, um, cholesterol screening. So for men and women, and it's not controversial. I mean, again, I don't think colonoscopies are a highly political issue. Um, but that says, you know, employers shouldn't have to cover those treatments at no cost. And specifically for contraceptives and PrEP said that covering it encourages homosexual behavior. That's just Texas, but it's the same sort of AG and group of people as the Texas abortion law. So again, what's next? So no drugs for HIV, no contraceptives because it, it encourages people to be promiscuous. You know, where does the train end is, is what concerns me. So there's a lot that's to be determined. So what can we do with our fear, in my opinion? just like we do for any other issue, whether it's climate change or violence or gas prices, there are elections coming up in November. And what Dobbs effectively did is said, we're gonna put regulating abortion in the hands of the states. Who drafts laws in the states? It's your elected officials. So it is so critical that whatever side of the conversation you're on, on all of these important issues, you okay, who am I going to vote for who's going to protect my rights the way I think they should be defined? You know, it's it's great to talk about it because that's how we get information, but now it's time to act. I mean, this is such a, a different interview than what I typically do because it's usually, you know, it's it's boxed in. It's like, here's a condition, you know, maybe we don't know a lot about it, how do we have a solution in the meantime? And oh, in a few years, there will be a test or a drug or something. And this is like, for lack of a better word, it just, it's, it feels so chaotic and stressful. And I want to have an answer. It's chaotic. And it's, you know, and why is abortion? Why, if you look at, you know, sort of American politics, why is abortion an issue that always comes up? Because you know, you have the religious piece, you have the bioethical piece, you have, there's so many elements to it. Again, I keep on going back to the colonoscopy, but it, you know, there's so many other, when you talk about disease states that, um, or, or conditions, having abortion is not, being pregnant is not a disease, obviously, that are just not, that don't hit the core of so many religious beliefs, beliefs about personal autonomy, beliefs about, you know, life, death, et cetera. Abortion is, it's like end of life. You know, why do we do so little in this country around end of life? You know, we talk about cutting healthcare costs. The majority of healthcare costs are at the end of life because that's another area 
who wants to go there? No one, because you're not going to find consensus and it's so highly, highly debated. And I think it comes back to your, you know, the first quote or the first comment that you started out with. I would argue that there's still so much taboo around women's health and women's bodies and women's lives. So yes, in certain areas that taboo is diminished. I mean, people talk about fertility treatments now, like they talk about going to the dentist, you know, that's an area where, you know, a lot of that taboo, although there's still, there's still much of it in certain cultures, or if you can't get access to IVF, but think about all the other areas in, in women's health that are so taboo that we don't talk about and we don't get funding for, and we don't get innovation in. Um, and because of that taboo, we don't say, hey, I want better treatment. I want better therapeutics. I want better digital uh, you know, medical. ED, let's talk about ED for a second. Erectile dysfunction. You know, that's not going to kill anybody. Okay. So when I hear, you know, investors or people saying, well, it's not going to kill her. Well, neither does ED. That said, the FDA approved uh, treatment in record amount of time. Um, The market for erectile dysfunction and hair growth. Talk about another area, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, Viagra, ED. Let's talk about menopause. I know I'm shifting this. But menopause, every woman goes through menopause, whether you like it or not, you know, Um, and I've said this recently, someone asked me, well, do all women get menopause or catch menopause? They said, I said, menopause (laughs) is not a, like, it's not like the flu that you catch and some people catch it and some people don't, you know, and there's a vaccine for it. Every person who has, you know, female organs will have menopause. Some it's because of, you know, uh, earlier on because of surgical intervention, you know, so many reasons, but everybody will get it. We do not talk about menopause in a meaningful way other than, you know, jokes about hot flashes in movies or in, in, in the office, which is totally inappropriate, but we don't talk about what are the, you know, 52 symptoms or 38 symptoms, you know, but whether you think there are 25 symptoms, excuse me, or 52, we don't talk about it because there's a taboo, you know, menstrual care. Why is there still such a taboo around periods? You know, if women don't get periods, there are no babies, you know, it's, um, so, okay. For, you know, for the species to continue, we need to have periods. Why is there such a taboo? You know, I, I hear a lot about, these statements where, okay, so if we don't want to have abortions in this country, if we want to outlaw them, what happens to the children that are born? Are there going to be services put in place to ensure that they're cared for? Because what if you're in a situation where you can't take care of this child? Um, What happens? And I know that's a really sensitive example that can like (laughs) make someone turn this off right now, but I think it's an important point that I keep hearing a lot about. Um, and I'm curious, you know, on your thoughts regarding that, I mean, are those founded fears as well, as far as one of the many downstream impacts? I mean, what, what do we do now that's special for kids who are born into a life situation where there are no adults to take care of them? I mean, there's the foster system, foster care system that's overstretched, underfunded, there are a lot of a lot of problems with our foster care system. I haven't heard of a special fund or special program for children who are born, but for I mean, I guess I would phrase this: children were, who were born, but they would have been born if their moms had been able to get an abortion. I mean, there's a lot there. So one example that that is even hard to say out loud. That's even hard to say, like, how does that work? But okay, so um, <laughs> what is it in Sudan? Like, let's look at Sudan. And this is the type of analogy. And, you know, obviously I didn't know this question was coming. I would have given you in Sudan for the children who were born out of rape during the civil conflict, there are now schools for them. They're trying. Okay. But I mean, this is a civil conflict that went on for years. These were coordinated attacks against women who were part of, you know, different, different groups. Is that where we want to be it's very complex and when you know as you say and when people say are you for abortion 
you know, oh, there are people who are for abortion. I don't think anyone's for an abort for abortion. Agreed. I agree. Right? You know, nobody's saying, oh, I'm for an atopic pregnancy. In an ideal world, there's no abortion. So, you know, there's no violence. So, you know, it says it's not about being for abortion. So what can we do and say, how do we, you know, it's supply demand. If there yep. was no demand for abortions, then these laws would be irrelevant. So how do we get to the core? How do we get to the, you know, whether the number is 40% of American pregnancies were unplanned or unwanted, you know, they're different statistics. How do we get to that? Yes. You know, because abortion is when things have gone, you know, quote, wrong. Um, how do we get to that? How do we get to more education in the schools? How do we get to people understanding that condoms have an 18% failure rate? You know, there's statistics on how many un unwanted pregnancies the people were actually using contraception. It just didn't work. Let's have those conversations earlier that the pill doesn't necessarily work if it's not well dosed to your BMI, for example. You know, how do we have those conversations and maybe, you know, change sex ed in the schools? Like, that's let's get at the source of this. Why are we having so many unwanted pregnancies in the United States? You know, as you're talking, you know what I really hear is this really kind of like COVID accelerated the issues we have in our healthcare system, which has accelerated telemedicine and things like that, which probably would have happened, you know, 10 years from now. I feel like this has really exploded how little we understand women's health, like you were alluding to earlier, because all I'm, what the summary I'm hearing is information, education, better information, um, and making it fact-based. And I think there's so much that's not understood. I mean, even things like on social media, there are so many women's health products that are getting banned. And I somewhat understand why, like, for example, um, it could be the hashtags. It could be the way the picture is. Like one time I was trying to post a picture of a woman's pelvis to indicate that I was talking about pelvic health or something. And it was not, you know, an alarming picture. And the app that I was using said, failed to upload. I'm like, what's going on? I tried uploading, uploading, and I changed the picture and it allowed for the upload. And I'm like, I was trying to create education. This is not some pornography picture. Um, and so I think there's just so many misperceptions that's creating all these rules from that comes honestly from a lack of understanding. I mean, a couple of reactions to that, and I think you're, you're so hitting it, is lack of understanding. What do we explain about the woman's body? Two women, two young girls. You know, what do we talk about, you know, uterine health? What do we talk about, like, incontinence? One in three women struggles from incontinence. One in three women leak. Does anybody talk about that? No, because it's taboo, because it's embarrassing, because, you know what, it's just a matter of fact. And it's not just if you've had babies, you know? Everything sags, I mean, at least on most people. As you get older, everything gets weaker. Well, guess what? So does your pelvic floor. It's not a, you know, let's address it. Let's educate young girls, you know, uterine fibroids. They can start in your 20s. The majority of African-American women will get uterine fibroids. Like, let's educate. And then, this is, you know, and educate men too. Because when, you know, I hear this, I have two boys. And the conversation that I had is, oh, well, you don't have any daughters. Well, this is, last time I checked, it takes two to tango, you know. Yes. And boys need to understand, men need to understand as well, whether they're in high school or in the workforce and say, you know what, why does my colleague, you know, why do her joints hurt? You know, why is she experiencing brain fog? Why does she, oh, it's menopause or maybe it's perimenopause, okay? You know, we need to understand because then it can't improve. I mean, the idea that menopause is like, you know, you, you menopause can start in your 20s. Yep. Most women don't appreciate that there are three phases of menopause, that they can go on, you know, it's 35 years. Women's health is focused on, we call it bikini health, you know, but your bikini, the years when you're actually having kids for most women who even have kids, not every woman have kids, is a finite period of time. It's not 50 years. 
right. you could start going through men and perimenopause in your forties and die in your nineties. And that entire time period, your, your, you know, your quality of life is being impacted. So one of the things I think we can do is let's remove these taboos. My grandmother, who now would be 115, she used to, she used to whisper the word cancer. Like cancer was something that you would, you know, you didn't I remember. Remember? It was like divorce. You know, now we celebrate cancer survivors. You celebrate previvors. You, there isn't this, oh my God, they did something wrong. They got cancer. Let's right. change the narrative around women's health. You know, whatever you believe in, we have bodies that, you know, God created, whatever you think, higher life form or not, there's nothing shameful in our bodies, just like there's nothing shameful in men's bodies. So let's change that conversation. And part of what you're referring to is the censorship. And if anyone's interested, there is an organization called the Center for Intimacy Justice. And they are, they did a fantastic report. They're doing more work. It's social media sites that are banning certain words and imaging. Breastfeeding is banned. Now, why are they doing this? Because under their policies, and I've read the policies, and you can go on Facebook's website and look at their policies, there's very vague language around, you know, pornography, excessively violent. None of us want porn to come up on Facebook. Okay, right. but breastfeeding and education on breastfeeding is not pornography. So now there are companies that are calling it chest feeding. Chest feeding sounds a little odd to me to say chest feed your baby. It's a breast. It's not a chest. Okay, I mean, <laughs> you know, why do we have to do these gymnastics? So why does that matter? It matters because it's blocking education. It's blocking yep. access to products. And for innovative products, they need to have consumers, customers. And if they can't advertise on a Facebook and, you know, Facebook platform or other social media platform, and that's where their audience is, again, and a lot of women's health uh, company founders are women, the economic impact, their companies just aren't going to grow. So again, how does right. it, it's like the, you know, the multiplier effect, they're women founders, it's women's health, the consumers can't get the information we need. We are all about, again, I have an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old, and I don't want them on their phones to see information that they shouldn't be seeing, but I am okay with them knowing about breastfeeding. But that's something that we can all do because we do have power and say, what's with this? This is educational information. Change your policies or have a different algorithm because it's algorithm-driven. It's interesting because you know I think at the root of this, education is what creates empowerment. Because I think back to where I grew up, it was um, really interesting because my parents are European and I grew up in one of the Southern states. And again, not bashing anything, not at all trying to create waves, but just stating what it felt like to me. And I, I definitely felt there was this fear put on me. It really impacted probably subconsciously my willingness to learn or even ability to learn. And now that I have so much more access to information, I've seen the transformation in my views and the decisions I can make and the comfort and power that I feel with that. And again, it's not about what my opinion is. It is about I can make a choice because I have information and you know, and I, I, I would honestly say to all those on social media, like, let's not put fear based things out there to get your followers, like, you know, even the media, like, let's not create the cool title that's going to get you the clicks. No. You know, we really need to be able to focus on sharing facts so that people can make the right informed decisions and make the information such that it's easy to understand. Like, you know, we were talking earlier about the laws, you know, it's great to see that there are these nonprofits out there who can help women better understand and interpret these local laws. But the information is, is the root of this and even clinical trials. My goodness. I was talking to an expert last night out of Australia and um, one of the women I've interviewed on my podcast many times, you know, she's really trying to get information out there that, hey, guys, by the way, these clinical trials, they don't separate out those on birth control versus not. 
And birth control impacts women's bodies in a different way than when they're not on it, yet they're not being separated out in clinical trials. What does that do to the information? And I, I feel like this podcast has gone from what happens with Roe v. Wade being overturned to honestly, it's it's opened a can of worms for what we don't understand in women's health and what we're doing wrong. But that's why it's so important. I mean, it's like yes. COVID was about a pandemic. COVID yep. was also about look at the failures in our health system. Yep. It wasn't just about pandemic and vaccination. What are the health inequities? Why do communities of color not trust our health system? Because they're underlying issues that really, who wants to talk about those? You know, it's like, yep. and, and there's always something that needs grabbing the immediate attention. And I think Dobbs is doing that. Like, if you want, you know, I don't know if you call it clickbait, but if you want people in the media, talk about how women's health gets 1% of overall funding. Talk yep. about how you and I have taken drugs, whether it's Tylenol or other drugs that have never been tested on women. Talk yep. about how, you know, women of color could talk about completely underrepresented. You know, why are we only getting 1% of the research funding? You know, talk about that 73% of American women say that they have untreated menopause symptoms. Okay. Yes. So if erectile dysfunction is one of the male menopause symptoms, why does theirs get treated and ours aren't? Talk about that maternal health in the United States, we rank 65th. What does that mean? That means there are 64 countries and whether it's people say oh, it's only 55th. I don't care. I don't want to be 55th or 65th in anything that's important. You know, yep. that the Harvard, Harvard Business School study in 2019 said that giving birth as a black woman in the United States uh, can effectively be a death sentence. If you look at women's health, there is so much opportunity to really look at things. Cervical cancer, number one killer, reproductive cancer killer. Um, cardiac care, we die more of heart attacks than men. Why? Not because we have them more, but because physicians don't necessarily know, haven't been trained in the science, yep. and because we don't know the science, you know, right. or the person in the restaurant doesn't know the signs, or wherever you have your heart attack. So there is enough, if you're in the media or whatever it is, or social media, there is enough that is shocking that there's no need to create fear, create, yep. you know, create action by saying, why do we get so little funding? Why am I taking drugs that were tested on 180 pound white male? Like answer that question. You know, there is so much, why are we dying? You know, why are women dying of preeclampsia and hemorrhaging at rates that far exceed all developing countries. I mean, we right. go on, and that's why Dobbs isn't about, it's so much more than about abortion. It's, you know, women's consumer power. You know, we're the chief financial officers of the American household. We are, we're the chief medical officer. We make medical decisions for ourselves, for our families, for our parents. This is our time to say, we want better care. We want more research. We need more attention not only for the conditions that quote kill us, but for our standard of life, our quality of life. Why do, why is it acceptable to say, oh, you know, she can live with it. She can live with incontinence and she's only 35. No, it's not. You know, we're demanding a higher quality of life in so many different areas for us, for our kids, for our neighbors, for our community. Cause this also impacts your ability to perform. If you're going through menopause at the same time that you're supposedly at the peak of your career, you know, I talk to women who say, I'm not going to go and take a board position because I just don't want to be like sweating in a boardroom, you know, or I'm not going to take this job because right now I'm struggling with, you know, urinary incontinence and I need to pee sometimes and I need to do it immediately. This is about our economic, um, our economic strength are, you know, there's so many different aspects to this that it isn't just about Dobbs. Right. So, you know, if we were to summarize, you know, we talked about education being important. I guess the way I would look at this, you know, we have doctors who are probably afraid. We have these companies who are trying to figure out how their businesses are going to be impacted. You know, obviously the patients are afraid and many, many others. And I think we've outlined it is overwhelming and chaotic. So we have to go to the foundations. And break it down. So what I'm hearing is one, understand the law in your state. 
And if you are struggling to understand it, then go to these resources and I will find them and post them um, onto the show notes. So please take a look at those, everyone. And I'm happy to share and, them with you as well that are going to break it down awesome. in, you know, do. in, in language that's easy for everybody to understand. Exactly. And then, you know, when it comes to like, for example, I would assume if it's, you know, doctors, I would say their academic medical center or their, their overall, their attorneys or whoever, <laughs> they need to, the leadership needs to figure out what is going to be the policy now. How are they going to train the physicians to handle these various situations, but then update that as laws change. And for those of us who are in women's health, we just have to press on and quite honestly, keep joining together and you know, really trying to make a dent in all the stats that you shared with us, because that's really the way forward. And we have to be fact-based and not fear-monger based. You could Google or whatever search engine you use and in your state, you know, look up which politicians are supporting the issues that are important to you. Yes. Whether they're current or they're going to be running for re-election or for election in November or whether it's, you know, you have a different time frame. Who are those politicians? Find out their names and then you can write to their offices. You can write and tell them. You know, I think access to prevent, and I'm not going to use abortion as an example. I'm yep. going to use a non, you know, again, non-controversial, but there's this issue of the Affordable Care Act, for example, or write about abortion. But there's this issue of the Affordable Care Act and covering, covering preventive care. Say, you know, I'm writing to you. I'm a constituent. I think it's important that coverage of mammograms or colonoscopies uh, continue. You have a voice. You have a vote. And you don't have to be reactionary and just say, oh, what's the law going to be? So certain states already have laws on the books, okay? Um, but a lot of states don't. So there is a role right now for all of us to reach out, write letters, to talk to your friends and say, this is maybe a form letter, doesn't matter. Reach out and write. And again, not just about abortion. What else in your state or what is important to you or to your senator? We all have two senators. You know, your senator, what are you doing for me around these areas and access to contraception or access to cervical cancer screening? I mean, that's not an automatic and it's the number one reproductive killer of women. So we can do a become informed and b we have power. And then the other piece is we spend our money. So, yep. you know, if there are companies that don't support whatever position you have, you don't have to spend your money there. You know, or or support people who are providing education. What I hear from women over and over is I feel like I don't have any power. You know, when all of a sudden the Supreme Court of the United States makes a decision that becomes the law of the land that immediately impacts women, it's a natural reaction to feel like I don't have any power. I feel powerless. Well, I think now is the time to say, okay, we all have some power. We all have, you know, influence. Maybe the influence is explaining to your son what a cervix is and how it can get cancer, or it's explaining, you know, why, why preventive colonoscopies are important or even abortion. What is abortion? Why do people have it? What do these things yeah. mean? We all have the power to do something today. I think in the past decade, one of the things that we have learned is every person's actions count. Everyone. And social media creates such a platform that you didn't have before. Social media start a movement. Look what Angelina Jolie did with like the Angelina effect and everybody, you know, thinking about, should I have preventive, um, you know, mastectomy? What are my genes? Like there is, we can create an effect and that effect can be more education. It doesn't have to be political. I mean, I guess unless you're anti-education, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but, you know, more better understanding, you know? Yeah. And, and there's a lot that we can all do and use our voices, use our platforms. See what your employer's offering. Hey, employer, what are you offering for menopause support or benefits? How about mental health? We haven't even touched on mental health. I know. But mental I know. health for women as a result, of, you know, we were stressed out, depressed, we're bearing so much even before COVID, the mental health numbers now are off the charts and we don't have access to the care that we need. 
So, know. you know, we can all do something. I have to end with this. I was at a conference last year, the Women's Health Innovation Summit, which I think we're both going to be yeah. at this year. One of the scientists, female, she said, I have to apologize to all the women because I did not do the proper research in women's health because I am incentivized to do the research fast and publish fast because the more I publish, the more funding my institution gets. And it is way easier to do research on men's health than women's health. And she apologized to the entire room. And so if we can't even get the research right, how do we get the education right? Because we will never know enough information. And so for those who are all worried about how many papers they publish and celebrate that, I'd rather do an assessment on how unique your research is and how unique the papers you publish are. And you should be given an award for increasing your women's health funding and research. So that is my ask of the uh, institutions out there who are all about publishing research. Agree. And let's also say, hey, just like we have for other companies where we're saying, you know what, do you get your products made by child labor in, in a developing country is to say, hey, companies, what percentage of your research funds, you know, this whole ESG movement for public companies, among others, more and more companies are focused on their mission, their vision, their values and being aligned and saying, so what are you doing? what percentage of your funds go to research for women? There are challenges with doing research on women because there's always yes. fear. Lawyers are you know, largely, large part responsible for being part of that. That, um, Well, no, lawyers don't bring lawsuits unless somebody's you know, asking them to bring a lawsuit. But this fear that what if you did some clinical research on a woman and it, it impacted her you know, either ability to have children or had negative impacts on, on future children or current children. That is real. That is real. Okay. But that said, there's a lot of other research, A, that can be de-risked to a certain extent. And there's a lot of other research. If you're looking at implants for my hips, you know, and I'm past childbearing age. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity, but also to hold companies and say, because there isn't, I mean, to your point, and it's also changing perception. It's all here. Well, you know, this is a small market. The women's health market is a small market. And you're like, actually, we're larger than 50%. You know, it's like niche. Niche is a four-letter word. We are not niche. Okay. Yep. Um, so what are you doing to yep. have research directed? Um, and to show, hey, we're not gonna buy your drug you know, like thyroid, women started saying, you know what, I'm not going to buy that, that Synthroid brand or that whatever brand it is, um, because they haven't done sufficient research. Hypothetical. I don't know. So don't like disclaimer, nothing wrong with Synthroid. I don't know, but I'm using this as an example. And women started <laughs> saying, you know what, I'm not going to buy that because you didn't do research on me. Just the way right. people have said, I'm not going to buy from that sneaker manufacturer things would change. And we are consumers. We are powerful consumers. Let's use our power for our benefit. Every one of us, regardless of your gender identity, needs to look in the mirror and say, what can I do? We've given a thousand examples. And I think all of them have an impact. And I think now more than ever, we are realizing even the smallest thing that we do moves the needle. So I, I implore everyone who listened today to just look in the mirror and say, what can I do? And if you don't know what you can do, I mean, look at, tr you know, free trade coffee. That was a concept that came and exploded. And, you know, people didn't want to buy coffee that wasn't free trade. Organic. We have done this before. Check out a company called Gender Fair. They rank companies based on the variety of criteria of how they treat women. Um, you know. Think about it and say, you maybe you don't buy cosmetics that were tested on animals, okay? Um, we have done this before. There is a playbook to say, we are going to exercise our consumer power. And I mean, I'm happy to work with you to identify some of those resources that people can go to. Recycled materials. You're saying, I'm not going to buy if they don't recycle. This is That's not, right. you know, let's follow that playbook and do it for women's health. Well, Delphine, I think we've got a project together coming, a coming up. <laughs> yeah, you know what? And then politicians will follow. 
you know, and it's the same thing. Politicians will follow and, you know, preventive care. And we need to, those of us who maybe have a larger platform need to amplify for women who maybe don't have that platform, but so that we all get the preventive care that, you know, is the standard of care. I'm not saying that we're, you know, reimbursing mascara. What I'm saying is that there are basic care for women that all women should have access to. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for for saying yes on LinkedIn. And uh, it's really great to know you and, and hearing your expertise and just having this really important conversation. And I hope that those who've listened have gotten as much out of it as I did. And, and thank you. This was a true joy. Thank you. Um, and thank you, everyone to, who, who tuned in. You know, we are all in this together. Absolutely.